Welcome to 9 to Thrive, a show about career, community, and creativity and how to balance those things. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. We will have part three of our conversation with Renaissance woman Dr. Adelia. She's an artist, writer, musician, and Dante scholar about how we make connections, mentoring each other, deep dives into poetry, and encouraging young people in whatever they're interested in so that they can blossom into the people that they are supposed to be. First, though, I'm going to review the book Physical Intelligence by Scott Grafton. Grafton is a neuroscientist at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Now, it has always bothered me how we prioritize the brain and thinking so much in our Western 21st century life. I am a child of teachers, I'm a sibling of teachers, and it's really unquestioned, this idea that somehow the brain is smart and the body is dumb. It's not, it's, it's just how it is framed in so many ways. And you can see this in our schools where they keep deprioritizing any recess, any free play, and even in not just the fact that Jim has been taken away and Jim was denigrated anyway, but also in how Jim was set up to not be a time of learning and playing for a lot of kids. It just, everything about it has been about integrating the body, the learning of the body, and respecting the learning of the body has been botched. All of this, for me, was really influenced by... Howard Gardner's multiple intelligences in terms of how I respect the different kinds of learning and acknowledge that there are different kinds of learning. I really disagree with having contempt with the other ways in which we and other people are intelligent. I think it just gives us a ex dumb excuse to make other people feel as badly as possible. And I think the primacy of the brain is a funny one because, as Lisa Feldman Barrett says, the brain is the only body organ that can tell stories about itself. So, of course, of course, it would tell stories about how it's the greatest. And it's kind of up to us to hold that in check and to say, what good is that story? Like, is that enriching our lives in any way? Is it making us better people? And I would argue it's not, because when we have only one modality, first of all, we undermine all the rest of our own potential, but we really undermine other people's potential, and we have no business doing that. So I don't think they can be divided in any meaningful way, so I was really interested in this book. In the introduction, Grafton says, we didn't evolve by sitting around. I think that's a great phrase. It's a fun one to throw out quickly. I think that would I think that would be and I think that is the elevator pitch for this book. I would point out we moved around a lot. We also died that way. <laughs> we died in a lot of accidents and we died in a world where we all died way younger. So I wouldn't say sitting around is good for us. I wouldn't say we evolved to sit around and I wouldn't say that modern life is necessarily giving us the best of itself, but there is a premise here that's like, sure, but also. His chapters are the space that we create. Very interesting stuff under that. The space that we create is done largely by our bodies and is done largely 
unconsciously. Surfaces, very interesting. I mean, the, the topics are, are great. Shaping the self, the hidden hand, which is the unconscious level at which we move. There's a sense of, he uses a phrase called the sixth sense, which is about this kind of almost invisible brain that our brain isn't actually taking into account. And the hidden hand refers to the thinking that our own muscles do. Pulling strings, perspectives, learning to solve problems, purpose, costs, and of one mind. Evolution has solved various problems. And it's interesting to think about, and I like this in the book, it's interesting to think about how by solving those problems, it's solved them with a limited variety of tools such that sometimes we don't really realize how it could be solved by other tools. And there's not just a list of other entities on the planet whose evolution has solved problems in other ways, but also just the limitations of all of us on this planet doing the sort of trial and error that through millennia that ends up solving these kinds of problems with this limited palette. Maybe we could go off book, who knows? He talks about our non-conscious thinking. He talks about embedded cognition. So octopi have a, octopuses, I never know which one, have a brain, but much of their thinking is done at the ends of their tentacles. He talks about why we fall. It was interesting. It was very much a data-driven why we fall. The idea being that we, as we get older, we haven't practiced uneven terrain and movements and therefore we don't have the ability to use them anymore honestly it's, it's it's a bit funny like some of the stuff that's quite interesting is some people they, they had people do like elderly people do three weeks of some kind of training or people with parkinson's do three weeks of some kind of training and they were already better at negotiating certain kinds of terrain all of that is definitely an argument for getting your body up and moving. There seems to be, for him, this real primacy of being outdoors. Again, I don't disagree. I do disagree on moralizing about it. And oh my God, is he ever moralizing about it. I'll talk about that afterwards. This entire book is a mix of pretty arcane, sometimes accessible science and his hike in the mountains. He just goes back and forth and back and forth. But the idea of why we fall, it's interesting. I took circus classes, and one of the things we learned how to do is roll into a fall. Something that, interestingly, the first person that ever taught me this skill was my paraplegic cousin. When He fell all the time, and at some point someone had taught him how to fall, and when I was a child, he taught me how to fall, and then I got it reinforced when I took circus classes. I have fallen since, and every time... I have rolled into the momentum. Some of this stuff, I don't know that I need to practice that a lot, necessarily. Maybe I'd feel differently if I got elderly and had a fall. I do feel like I know what to do. So it is sort of interesting, this idea. I don't know that I have to constantly practice. He talks about the discovery of this thing called the duckwaddle gait, which was this weird, fashionable way of walking that was common in Paris at a very specific time in the 18, late 1800s, turns out there was a massive epidemic of syphilis. And the reason people were walking in this very weird way 
is because their bodies were no longer taking on the walking like properly. They weren't balancing right because there was all this deterioration and destruction in their spinal columns from the disease. So that's how some of this stuff was discovered. And I think that's one of the really interesting things. And I think that's one of the things worth mentioning about a lot of this science. A lot of this science very, very much depends on people whose ability has been compromised. And then extrapolations are made about people whose ability is not compromised. And of course, sometimes there are double blind, well, there can't be double blind tests, but sometimes there are tests with a an alternate group that doesn't have whatever this thing is. The thing about humans is we're super, super, super complex. Even such a simple thing as our posture can be inherited, not because it was genetic, but because the family circle we swim in is so invisible as to affect us. So there's a lot of these nuances that this Grafton doesn't cover. Anyway, uh, the duck waddle gate's really interesting that we are not the only ones using tools. So I've already started talking about my own opinion about this. So first of all, I want to say one thing that I really appreciated was learning the word affordance. I have heard it before and I've never understood it, or rather what I understood it to be was like wiggle room because it was never defined. And actually this guy didn't define it either. I had to go look it up, but it is the properties of objects which show users the actions they can take. Users should be able to perceive affordances without having to consider how to use them. For instance, a button can be designed to look as if it needs to be turned or needs to be pushed. See why affordances are key to users' desired actions through things like UX UI, user experience, user interface design. That's really interesting. And when you think about, again, that limited palette, things like a hammer, we seem to instinctively know how to grasp it. It has an affordance of a certain kind. I might go looking for something that talks more about this because I think that interface is absolutely fascinating. Anyway, incorporating tools into our own body shape, that was super interesting. And what it means for us, like our brains recalibrate all the time. That's So one of the things I learned from Lisa Feldman Barrett is that we have an entire system working so much faster than our conscious system that it's only barely understood. And it is why we can catch a ball. If we took the time to think about catching a ball, we would be hit in the face. So an entire other system is going on. What's really interesting is the way we incorporate tools into our body map as part of that system. So we can walk with a walking stick for a while and pretty soon, we've extended our body map to include that stick. It sounds like part of the way that prosthetics work. He doesn't really go into it very much, although he does talk a little bit about phantom limbs. That's part of the body map. And you can't wear a prosthetic, according to my understanding, which is fairly limited. But it, maybe it's, I should say it's incredibly difficult to make a prosthetic work if you do not sense a phantom limb. So if your brain turns off that part of the map and for whatever reason won't draw it back, you may not be a candidate for a prosthetic. So apparently, though, we can do this for ourselves with tools, with sticks, with hammers, with other tools, making it very interesting in terms of people's ability to use 
things, I believe, like, he doesn't talk about this, but now that I'm talking it out loud, that's got to be what's happening when we're talking about Olympic-level snowboarders and skateboarders. That's got to be the case when we're talking about some of those other tools of athletics as well, right? Because if a stick can do it, then the bat definitely works in a baseball game. But it's interesting to extrapolate that to things like kayaking. Anyway, he doesn't go into that, but it really brought me down some interesting sort of revelations. Frankly, again, with that gardener about how incredible we are. Like, I don't think we give... There's a lot of emphasis on awfulness in this world for a lot of reasons, one of which is that we are wired to see awfulness. I covered this in another book review. We are wired to see danger. We have, many of us have a tendency to contaminate our stories. So we tell a story of growth or joy only to undermine it at the end. That's a cultural thing. And it's also detrimental to our mental and communal health. We also talk a lot about how awful we are. And when you start to really think about how really breathtakingly amazing our minds and bodies are to really appreciate it, the world looks really different when we do this. And it it is a place of freer mental health when we do. And one of the reasons I want to talk about this is because a big part of his research and a big part of his references in this book is about AI and how AI uses all this science to create, or, you know, scientists working in AI use this science to create robots. Like the, I'm sorry, horrifyingly scary Boston Dynamics robots, which are supposed to walk on even terrain and carry things so that we can kill people in other countries. Here's the thing, and here's the thing I've always felt when I look at this stuff. We already make perfectly adapted entities to do our human work, and we do that by having children. And there is an entire emphasis in AI to replicate this human learning. Actually, one of the funniest stories I ever saw was this guy who was sure that now that he had a baby, he put cameras all over the house to study that baby learning because he knew it would make his AI work better. And ultimately, I believe he quit the field because a baby is so much more sophisticated than we can ever make our tools. And a lot of times in AI, there is a real denigration of humanity and humans in this as if it's, it's, I don't know, it starts to feel like Frankenstein, like, oh, I can create this thing myself rather than, I don't know, pay attention to my children and raise them well, pay attention to other people's children and give them a chance. Instead, we'll just make a metal one. And it's ridiculous because yes, that dog robot in Boston Dynamics can walk on uneven terrain. Sure. The other one can flip off boxes and look like a person shaped entity. It will not be quoting Shakespeare to you while it does it. It won't be explaining how to make a pie while it does it. It won't be far from its power cord when it does it. 
it will be rendered unable to do it when it has a rock in its sock or joint. It will be rendered incapable when it has a leak and can't bandage it up like we do. So I'm very skeptical of the end game and I'm very skeptical of the underlying assumptions when I talk to people, read, read people's science, and, and listen to people about AI. I read somebody comparing Grafton to Oliver Sacks. Okay, stop right there. He is no Oliver Sacks. In the sense that he wrote a book, and it's about the brain and the body, sure. He is not even close. Oliver Sacks was a neurologist. He was a brilliant, brilliant writer. He brought everything into sharp focus, even if you hadn't spent years in neurology. This guy has nowhere near the humanity, the depth of kindness and humanity that Oliver Sacks did. And Oliver Sacks talked plenty about the body. I would be super interested in reading, like maybe a kinesthesiologist or something who was as good a writer as Oliver Sacks like where the primacy was the body and then the mind. But this is not that book. Grafton doesn't really cover brain plasticity. There's all this focus on where does this one thing live in the brain? And another thing I learned, as I learned so many things, please everybody read Lisa Feldman Barrett's How Emotions Are Made. It is just a mind-blowing work and very data-centric, but with way more nuance than this. So he doesn't talk about brain plasticity. He just says, where does this thing live in the brain? That is a very old construct in the brain and body sciences. What a lot of newer research shows is that living in the brain is a tenuous concept, that we have the capability of certain kinds of plasticity so that the language we even talk about this with gets very limiting if we're going to talk about living in the brain. And he's, he never goes more global. He sort of just walks along as if that is the structure that there is. He seems to believe that robots can be as sophisticated as animals and humans. And as I said before, I mean, I was just talking about humans when I was raving about how amazing we are. Oh my God, every animal is astonishing as well. I looked up his bio. Maybe he has kids. Only one biography mentioned it. It feels like when you read this book, like he has never observed a child, that he's never spent time, deep time, learning with a small child. Because a lot of his conclusions would be very different and very nuanced if he actually seemed to have familiarity with meat-based human children. And, you know, the hiking thing is very dominant in this narrative. He's hiking. I get it. He's hiking. I'm not a big hiker, or rather, I do enjoy a hike, and then I want to go home, and I want to sleep in a bed. I don't begrudge other people liking hiking, liking camping. That is awesome. I think it's great. Do I think it's a moral stance to like hiking? I do not. Do I think it is absolutely essential to our character as humans? Absolutely, I do not. I think we can experience all sorts of environments and all sorts of nature in very different ways. 
I got super tired of that sort of being the only lens with which this guy sees the world. Also, he, in the beginning, he was very pleased about the fact that he went off map, that his wife wouldn't be able to find him if something happened to him. And he talks about this sort of thrill of safety and danger. What kind of narcissism is that? Where you're super pleased that emergency personnel will have to be pulled out and blanket a given area. And this is one of the places where I really had a problem with this book because this felt very gendered to me. First of all, first of all, in the gendering, he is of an age where he cannot stop saying he or she and all of his examples are blah, 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 and he, blah, 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 and she. That's pretty even-handed. I get that. But honest to goodness, just use they. It is an acceptable singular it was acceptable to Shakespeare, it's acceptable to Churchill, then it can be acceptable to us. Because the only people who do this, James Acaster, the comedian, has a hilarious bit on this, are men and men of a certain age who want to say he all the time and immediately throw in, or she. A lot of his examples are kind of weird, like, why would you say that he talks about Native Americans being out in this area, which of course they were, they tended this continent like a giant garden, as if they were alone, as if they were sort of by definition male. Huge assumptions there. It feels like a lot of hubris. He talks about being hyper aware and hyper vigilant of nature and then talks about things like parking garages. And I think you have no idea what women experience, do you? We are from birth taught to be hyper aware of predators and they are human predators in any dark space. So do we camp and hike alone? We do not. But have we as a human species? Not really. The whole thing that makes us human is our cooperation and social nature. Not only that, our brain re-regulates us. Not only are we just generally safer if we have someone near us who can help us or go for help, but our brains are regulated to ease our load when we are with others. We have a different glucose uptake that eases our way when we are doing things like difficult terrain. This guy just has zero concept about that, and it feels like a strange take, quite frankly. Maybe it's a neurodiversity take, or maybe he's a narcissist, or maybe he just is so deeply immersed in sort of our man box culture that he can't see anything else. Zero comprehension of the emotional effects from the body to the brain to the body and back and forth again. There's nothing, there's not even a, a glimmer of that understanding. And it's sort of interesting because when I did look up his biography, it's all about using MRIs to study the brain, which that's great, but just because you know a how, it doesn't follow that you know a why. And just because you think you know a how, doesn't mean you actually know a how. I find this a lot of times in people who are very high up in their professions. They've gotten very siloed in terms of how they understand the world, and it really takes a special, special kind of soul like Oliver Sacks to move out of that. Early on in the book, 
actually it was in the introduction, Grafton gave me a real pause about how this book was going to go. I read the book, I went back to my notes, and then I did a little more looking at what was behind this statement, and okay, here it is. So here's the quote. He says, this brings up the question of whether some children labeled as having attention deficit disorder, ADD, have a real brain disorder or are simply misplaced to their stage of cognitive development. For those children with ADD dominated by hypoattentiveness as opposed to hyperimpulsiveness, there is relatively increased connectivity through the ventral attention network. Furthermore, there are weaker connections among the salience network and cognitive control and the dorsal attention network. In this light, the attentive boy is not abnormal, in need of Ritalin, or a psychologist. He is a well-adapted younger member of his species, not yet sufficiently muscular or skillful to be independent. Situate him in a prehistoric setting, and it would be critical for him to be vigilant for hazards in his environment. What? So, ADD, first of all. No one calls it that, and no one's called it that for a long time. So what I did was, I looked at the notes that he was referencing, the studies he was referencing. They used ADHD correctly. Why didn't he? And then I read the studies that he referenced. Granted, I am not a neuroscientist, but I certainly can read an abstract, and I certainly can read a summary. The studies he, he referenced had nothing to do with this kind of medical-slash-moral statement. And that makes me think there may be other suspect references. This is BS. So what you can do and should do, you can create accessible learning environments that minimize the crashing of someone's learning impairments to broaden their ability to ease their way. In other words, an impairment's not an impairment unless there's a barrier. So having ADHD is not necessarily any kind of learning disability in terms of learning if you create a learning space where that doesn't become something that runs into barriers. If you ask kids, boys and girls, who have some of the hyperactivity issues to sit still in a hard chair, you have made their neurodiversity into a disability. If you set up an environment where a blind person knows exactly where they are at all times and can function in it, then in that environment, they have ceased to be disabled. They have an alternate way of functioning. But that has to be done very consciously and very deliberately, and that is not what he is arguing for here. He is suggesting that people don't need medication, that people don't need a psychologist, and I am here to assure you that they 100% do because we do not have those environments. And maybe he's wishing that we were back in primitive times and eating bison and uh, like, you know, being Otzi in the Norwegian tundra or whatever. We are not. We're not. So all these weird assumptions about it. People have ADHD all the way through their entire lives. There are so many adults with undiagnosed ADHD. He has no understanding of that. There are loads of girls, loads of girls. And because we are taught to be compliant, 
we are ignored in our distress. There are three types of ADHD and it shows up very differently in kids and adults. He is really dismissive of this entire knowledge base. Like he just doesn't, not only does he not have it, he's, he's putting in stuff like this that has a certain weird moral kind of stamp. Hypervigilance, which I talked about before, is also, because it's a trauma response, it's also very much a part of ADHD. When you become an adult and they test you for ADHD, they may say to you, as they say to me, we can't tease it out from PTSD anymore. Like, who knows anymore which part of it was this and which part of it was that. So trauma response is as much a part of this as anything else. And we had very different trauma responses in a world where our learning, physical and cognitively, was more integrated into the work that we did. We didn't sit at desks. We didn't read books all the time. We interacted with other people in a way that was more collaborative, teaching kids how to do what they need to do. This is part of the thing about respecting indigenous learning. If you take your children as essentially apprentices and you teach them how to sail the South Pacific in a boat that you made together, navigating using your hands and angles and the stars, you are deeply, deeply, deeply intelligent in a way that me as a schooled person who worked in office jobs can barely comprehend. And clearly, as someone who became a doctor after a decade of schooling on top of their previous decade of schooling, can recognize and understand. So all of this, the weird gendering language, the weird moralizing, the, the failure to really talk about the studies in a way that was accessible. It, it wasn't a textbook, but then it wasn't really an Oliver Sacks book either, quite honestly. And then that strange, strange sort of approach to things that he clearly doesn't know about, and he didn't seem to even read the works that he cited, because they said nothing about what he was talking about in his text, about ADHD. I was going to give the book a solid B, but instead, because of this mess, I'm giving it a C+. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a show about career, community, and creativity. Next up is part three of my conversation with Dr. Edward. But like I said, that sense of always something new does not let up. Mm. It doesn't. Until, now mind you, so I was back in school 
were taking this course, the professor knew that I'd read most of the comedy and I was still reading it. I was, I'd come to the end of it by the end of the course. And so we get to, um, to the 33rd canto, the, well, the, the last reading group, which was, I think it was like the 31st, 32nd, no, 32nd, 31st, 32nd, 33rd canto, right? Mm. And I had already read up to the 32nd, the end of the 32nd. And all my other classmates, because they were reading it for the first time, they were kind of like running to catch up. But I had been on the 32nd like for several weeks and I'd stopped there. And when, we, when the class finally got to that point and it was a weekend and we'd be coming back on Tuesday to talk about the end of the comedia, I went to the professor and I said, I, I really don't want to read the end of this. And he goes, why? You try to like, you want to just like hold on to that like feeling because he knew just how just completely immersed I was. And I was like, actually, no, no, no. I, it's not that I want to prolong it. I really don't want to read that last canto because I mean, by, by that time, by the end of the year, you have, you've got enough like hints about like how it ends. Mm. And and I knew that at the final canto, Dante sees God, right? Right. And after that point, my pleasure and satisfaction and surprise and immersion had been so complete, like more than complete. Mm. And yet, because I'd grown up in parochial school, that was all teaching me all about God and the ineffability of the divine. I knew that he could not present a meeting with God that would be satisfactory, that would even measure up to mm. what I've experienced up to that point. You know? Yeah. I knew that he would ruin it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I was like, and I didn't want him to ruin it. Like, I wanted to save him from himself. I was like, oh, everything up to this point has been so perfect. Like, I don't want, like, Dante, I don't want to reveal those feet of clay. Right. Because he tries to describe God and it, fails miserably. Don't jump, the, the, don't jump the shark, Dante. <laughs> that's exactly, that's the one thing that we, like, it's drilled into you when you have a religious education. Mm that God is ineffable, right. right? And and so I told that to the professor and I was like, I like I don't want to, I don't want him to ruin it. Um, <laughs> and mind you, notice I'm saying I don't want him to ruin it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Faith is so absolute, it's crazy. <laughs> and and the professor goes, um, why don't you just Go ahead and give it a try, and you know, and uh, just tell me what you think. Like, because this is the first time I've heard someone who doesn't want to end a book because they're afraid <laughs> that the author is going to ruin. It. I was like, I'm not afraid. Like, I know he's going to ruin it. <laughs> <laughs> so I go home, and oh, by the way, let's just remind everybody that between the time I started. Learning Italian, mm. and the time I'm reading, getting to the end of Canto 33, about a year has gone by. 
Okay. And remember, I started learning Italian because I couldn't breathe. Yeah. Which means that my brain is saturated in Dante's speech. That's yeah. how I see the world. <laughs> That's how I speak Italian. Someone actually made fun of me. He said I sounded like a medieval. I sounded medieval when I spoke Italian. Uh, this was back then. I've, I've since learned contemporary Italian. But anyway, so 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 my my like the folds of my brain are saturated in the commedia. I go over the weekend and I, you know, like gritting my teeth and going, oh, I don't know. <laughs> so I, I, I back, I, you know, so I, I step back a little bit. I think I started on Canto 31 again because that was the assignment after all. I was like, okay, I'll just like, I'll just like, you know, just like bite the bullet and just like go for it. <laughs> so, so because I'm rereading Canto 31, like, and and because I don't want to get to 33, I'm <laughs> taking my time and like really like enjoying everything I can about 31 and 32. And I'm like, I'm gonna get the most out of it so that by the time it gets ruined, I will have like a you know like a, a little reserve of goodwill. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I get to and and what's really amazing? Oh, this is incredible. So. So, so people who read the Comedia know this, and I don't know if they get as thrilled as it is I do. I hadn't noticed this before. Canto 32 ends with a colon. Oh. It's the only canto that ends with a colon. Meaning that he says, Bernardo is about to offer a prayer to the Virgin, right, on behalf of the pilgrim to allow the pilgrim to make that final step to join with the divine. Mm. And so he ends, and his prayer begins thus, or something to that extent. Let me see how he actually ends it. Let me see. I have the comedia right here in front of me. He then began his holy supplication, colon. Right? Mm. And that's how and it ends? That's how Canto 32. Oh, 32. okay. Okay. This is the penultimate canto of the entire story. Okay. It's the only one that ends in a colon. So it's like, it's propelling you forward. Yeah. Right? Because the last line of canto 32, he then began his holy supplication, colon. The first line of the next canto, virgin mother, daughter of your son, most humble and exalted than any other creature, fixed goal of the eternal plan. You are the one who so ennobled human nature that he who made it first did not disdain to make himself of its own making. Mm -hmm. This is how Canto 33 begins, which is already mind bending mm. because he's talking about the virgin mother, daughter of your son. She is the sort of the end result of the beginning that then brings a new beginning. Right. She is the mother of her maker who mm. made her, mm. right? So all of this is, it's like this, it's almost like this three-dimensional sphere, like, you know, these like these four, no, four-dimensional geometric things that sort of fold in on, on themselves. Mm. And this is how it begins. And so it was like, you know, okay, this is good promising it proceeds 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 goes on and it gets to the point where the pilgrim finally like he's released into this realization 
but Dante doesn't just bonk you over the head with it. <laughs> he leads you up to it very gradually with three similes in a row. Three similes that are about ineffability. Mm. The fact that what he's about to tell you is impossible to actually say. Ah, uh, got it. Yes. Ah. <laughs> uh. Because even if he were able to, even, whatever it is that he's going to offer you, yeah. is merely the memory of a shadow of a dream. And he's as eloquent in saying it as a baby who is still suckling at its mother's teeth. Mm. Yeah? Yeah. So, so he's led you through these three similes and he's like, and the memory is so ephemeral that it's like, if you've ever seen those moments where in the snow, now you're from the Northeast and you, mm. you relate to this, right? Mm. There's been a thick snow and yeah. someone walks on it and leaves footprints on it. Yeah. And it doesn't rain, but as the sun shines, the snow begins to sublimate and those footprints begin to sort of like meld and disappear mm. into the sublimating snow. This is how his memory of that moment sort of vanishes away, mm. right? And so he's piling these on, and it's one, and it takes about nine verses, and then the next one is about another nine verses, and then, and then, and then he says, and finally, I joined with the divine light. Oh, abundant grace. And here's what's really cool, something that I discovered only years later in my dissertation. Yeah. There are, uh, of the 14,233 lines, obviously the, the rhyme scheme is A, B, A, B, C, B, C, B, C, right? It's like a chain link, right? Yeah. But there are only 753 distinct rhymes. Okay. So, so you start out with A, B, C, D, E, and then by the time you get to J or whatever, it starts repeating on the, you know, hmm. but only 753 of them. The 753rd one, the last rhyme, mm -hmm. is introduced with the line that says, I joined with the creator. That's the last new element in mm. the entire poem. The moment of joining with the creator. And then he gives you this image of the divine that is so mind-blowing that for 700 years, people mm. are like, whatever it is he's describing here, Nobody can make heads or tails of it because you're not <laughs> supposed to be able to make heads or tails of it. <laughs> and it is amazing because the image of God that Dante gives us is entirely composed of geometric figures. Hmm. He uses the language of mathematics and only mathematics to describe what he saw. And it is amazing. That is, is so, you're, you're, you're honestly selling me those. So I got through it through the Fairy Queen and I think I must have only read excerpts because I don't remember that denouement at all. You're thinking about someone else. The Fairy Queen is not Dante. Yeah, but the doesn't, doesn't he reference, doesn't he reference Dante in it? Yes, but this is. That's, but the that's how I read any Dante was that I had read the Fairy Queen and then I read the things that explained what had happened oh. in the Fairy Queen. But I did not read Dante from cover to cover. I only read. It's almost I like see, it's almost I like if you had see. just read the Francesco parts from that 
from that oh. flowers book and been like, oh, that explains it, and then walked away. <laughs> uh, and you know, this is a very common experience, actually. A lot of people read Dante in that kind of like piecemeal, fragmentary way. If not, sure if not, if not as a as something that's like secondary to somebody to something else, it's that they only read like select cantos. Yeah, especially in courses. And I think to myself, that is like the worst way to read because this is a journey, right? Yeah, it's like step by step by step. Each verse is a footstep forward. And so to skip any of it, it's like you're trying to climb a ladder and you want to like skip 10 rungs, right? <laughs> so not only is it difficult, but it's kind of nonsensical and you're yeah. left completely disoriented. Well, no, that's not true. You're not completely left disoriented because there's a lot that, that can just go. It's just that you miss, you miss the experience of the journey when that happens. Yeah, it's just a um, slice and dice. Like exactly. as you're explaining it, it was funny because some places I was like, that's right. I remember that. Another place I was like, I never read that part. Like I have yes, no idea yes, about that part. And I yes. did not read to the end, which is yes. how I'm sitting here going, whoa. Yeah. So <laughs> the Commedia needs to be read from verse one of Inferno one all the way to the final verse of, of, um, <laughs> of Paradiso because it is so worth it. Right. And and so here here you have this this image, and then once we have the 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 vision right of the mm. divine, the, or the the joining of the divine and his and his geometric, mathematical representation of it, mm. he still finds a way to again aggregate all these other similes and ends with like the geometer who fully applies himself to square the circle and mm. for all his thought cannot discover the principle he lacks. Such was I at that strange new sight. Now he's beginning to have a new revelation. Mm. I tried to see how the image, this is the human image that he, he, he discerns his own effigy, right? Mm. Okay. Within this wholeness, meaning that he does see all of creation in one place, including the human figure, right? Mm -hmm. I tried to see how the image fit the circle and how it found its, its location there. But the wings of my, my imagination would not have sufficed for that had not my mind been struck by a bolt of lightning that granted what I asked. So he's trying to penetrate the quiddity of this new vision he's his discerning, right? He's seen the geometric representation of God. Mm. He's seen all of creation, like every instant that ever was, is, or will be. Mm. Everything that ever existed or ever will exist. It's all in there, in that point, in that volume. And he's trying to penetrate it. And this lightning bolt strikes him. Mm. And it grants him the ability to see it. But then he says, here, my exalted vision lost its power. But now my will and my desire, like wheels revolving with an even motion, were turning with the love that moves the sun and all the stars. Mm. So his intellection, like his intellectual discernment, lost all its capacity, but all of his will and desire just went into consonance with that of the divine. Mm. 
And he became one with everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just achieved enlightenment in every possible way. And here's what's really cool from a Linduvist point of view. The poem ends in the past progressive tense, in the gerundive. We're turning. Mm. My will and my desire were turning with the love that moves the sun and all the stars. It doesn't come to a full stop. And then this happened, now we're done. Something new was beginning to happen. And that's where the poem ends. Mm. <gasps> yeah, that's good. That does not disappoint. Did you notice the love that moves the sun and all the stars? That that final image of the love that moves the sun and all the stars was the very first image he had of hope, of you know when the sun was rising in the heavens and the mm. company of all the stars that had been with him when the prime love had first set everything in motion. Brings us full circle. Yeah. I've got yeah. I've got morning has broken running in my head. <laughs> that's wonderful. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually what when you were when you were talking about the links, that was actually the image I had as well. Like mm-hmm. I could actually hear the it, I did I got a little earworm for another minute or so after that. <laughs> you know, I saw a movie once, an art house movie, and I remember mm-hmm. nothing of the plot mm-hmm. of this movie except the title and this one thing. It uh-huh. was called I Heard the Mermaid Singing, which I believe <laughs> is a, I think that's a pickup from like J. Alfred Prufrock or something like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But it was about, well, part of it anyway, the only part I remember of it was about this painting that was so unspeakably moving mm-hmm. and beautiful. And they talked about this thing in the same almost that same trajectory of being like, all right, I'll stick with this, but you know, we're going to see the painting and it'll be like, oh, I have to suspend my belief and assume it's Mm -hmm. the most beautiful thing anyone's ever seen. Okay. Mm -hmm. Whenever, like once they showed the painting, they never showed the painting. They showed the viewers of the painting bathed in light. Nah. You never saw. You saw their response to the painting. You saw their response, and they were bathed in light. Mm. So the the painting simply seemed to generate like it was a it was a shortcut in a way, but it was Mm -hmm. it was they. And I thought, oh my god, that is that is both the most brilliant dodge and the most meaningful thing I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. We never see Mm -hmm. what what was so unbelievably moving and beautiful mm-hmm. they're just bathed in sort of the enlightenment of this painting and i was like great good great i remember nothing else about the movie but that fantastic i don't even have to tell you show you how beautiful it is you don't have to agree mm-hmm. nothing else mm-hmm. just that people who stand in front of it mm-hmm. are blown away and completely mm-hmm. bathed in light yeah so i did want to ask you too Mm -hmm. bringing us back a little bit back down to earth what's Mm -hmm. next for you what what do you want to do in the next you know year or two what do you what do you what are you aiming for so what is next for me what do i what do i want to do in the next few i know that i want to continue 
enjoying the world the way I do right now. Mm. I, I, I am aware that my encounter with first Francesco d'Assisi and then Dante was the fulfillment of that initial intuition that I had that Beethoven was the like the end all and be all that the piano was the meaning of life mm. right it was a an experience that I had very young and it was not something that I could effectively communicate in any meaningful way to the people around me although they could see my passion for it now as an adult and this ties into your third element which is work mm. as an adult I found that where where my my love and passion and sense of of seeing the world more clearly came through the poetry that I read in Dante it came through comes through the music that I I play uh, for enjoyment not for performance mm. um, wh- what I could do with it in my work was share that love the the experience that I have with students as a teacher mm. in university, the experience that I have with students is guided by a very simple principle to allow them to access their intuition for uh, curiosity. And in cultivating that intuition, like find ways to find ways to connect it with the, the, like to notice beautiful things in the world mm. and and let that feed their continued intuition when i teach language for example we have the textbook we have the grammar we have the text in front of us and i tell the students from the get go this is the material that we're covering for the course and these are the tests that are going to go with it and this is the evaluation method but our mission in this course is to come away with an intuition of how beautiful it is to look at the world through the lens of this language mm. and when you go out there notice things right notice don't just like put a a, a, a post-it on a window and say fenêtre <laughs> or a door and say porte right yeah. or a tree and say arbre like when you're putting that post-it on the tree, like notice the tree. Yeah. And try and imagine, like, what would that tree look like to, th- to a three-year-old French child? Would it look different to them mm. or not? And so the idea being to really, to connect the experience of the world around them to anything else that they're learning and therefore like cultivate their intu- intuition for noticing and engaging in beauty. Because this is where I get the most enjoyment. Mm. And so I use my work to do that. I remember <laughs> when I was in, in Pisa as a graduate student uh, uh, doing work for my dissertation, I did spend a lot of time with people in my cohort in the department, in the academic faculty, other, other students, other scholars, mostly graduate students and some faculty. But the majority of my time in Pisa, I spent in mom and pop shops (laughs) around the town. And here's the most interesting thing. 
I spend most of that time talking to them about Dante. <laughs> I think because it, and and it wasn't on purpose. Like it was, I wasn't on a mission to do this, right? I was like I'd be out on a the, the time I was, I was shopping for um, uh, handbags because my sister's birthday was coming up. I wanted to get her a genuine Italian handbag, right? Um, but from a mom and pop shop, not from one of these like exorbitantly priced uh, designer things. I figured she loves something from Pisa. Yeah. So I walk into this mom and pop store, which is a, a leather outfitter. They had jackets and bags and what have you. And the interaction started, as you would imagine, customer comes to the store, how can I help you, et cetera. And invariably, partly because I'm African and, and also because I had the good luck of often encountering really curious and engaged people. Mm. The question would arise, oh, but you're Italian. Mm. It's amazing. Mm. Like, this is incredible. You sound like you were born mm. here, right? And I'd, I'd explain, oh, I'm here for school. I'm at, you know, the Scuola Normale. And always, that always piqued their interest because the normale has a reputation. They're like, oh, you're the normale. That's fantastic. What are you doing there? And I say, oh, I'm there doing my dissertation on Dante. And they're like, oh, Dante. <laughs> oh, I hate to break right? into a great conversation, but we are out of time for this week. Tune in next time when Adoyo and I finish our conversation on effective parenting and mentoring and poetry and more. Links to Adoyo's books, as well as past episodes, can be found at our website, working9tothrive.com. That's with the number nine. And if you want to know about upcoming episodes or what we're doing, please follow us on social media.